I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, joining me is Luke de Brabender. Luke is a corporate philosopher. He's a fellow of the BCG Henderson Institute. He's a professor at the Brussels School of Economics and Management. And he's an author of a book called Thinking New Boxes, a new paradigm for business creativity. But today, is here to talk with me about his most recent book together with his collaborator, Lina Benberes, called Be Logical, Be Creative, Be Critical, The Art of Thinking in a Digital World, which was published in December 2021. Luke and Lina's book discusses a topic which is, I think, near and dear to our podcast, The Art of Strategic Thinking. Specifically, they investigate how the rise of the internet, social media, and AI change the way that we have to think. And I think they also do a pretty good job on just the general art of upgrading our thinking capacities. And I particularly appreciate the book because it provides readers with models for how to think rather than more typically with a business book telling the reader what to think. So thank you for joining me, Luke. My pleasure. So let's start with the basics, Luke. You say that thinking is a two-stroke engine consisting of deduction and induction. Tell us a little bit about that. I would say if you open your skull and look inside your brain, you'll notice you only have there simplifications. A strategy is a simplification. A business model is a simplification. A stereotype is a simplification. A map is a simplification. We only have simplifications here. So it means there are two movements. Part of thinking simplifies, produces a simplification, and the other thinking uses those simplifications. And as a philosopher, I call induction the process where thinking simplifies and deduction the process where thinking uses those simplifications. You've got another important classification in the book, which you lay out in a tree of different types of thinking. And broadly, you divide that into three buckets, being logical, being critical, and being creative. Give us a little bit of a flavor for each of those modes of thought. There are a wide array of thinking. When you do a multiplication, you think. When you dream at night, you think. So there are a huge variety of way of thinking. But if you go a little bit close to the point, you can organize all kinds of thinking around three clusters. Logic, creativity, and critic. So let me propose three definitions. So to me, logical thinking is a systematic study of the form of inferences. It's the way to check whether there is some valid reasoning why you're talking. Creativity is an art, is a skill. It's the skill of somebody who easily can change his or her perception. And Critical thinking is number three, because in fact, logic and creativity, you can do that alone. Not alone, but you don't need much people to do that. But one day or another, you have to communicate around those ideas. You have to sell, to market, to transmit, to explain. So you are in contact with somebody else in front of you. And then you need a third type of thinking, which is critical thinking. How to convince how to persuade, and eventually how to deal with arguments and with fallacies, because sometimes you have fallacies in front of you. So I think those three types of thinking, all of our listeners will be familiar with, but 
I was once asked by a CEO, could you help my management team to think? Could you help them to be better at thinking? Very tough assignment. How broadly can we be better at each of these types of thinking? I think be logical is a question of energy. You have to spend time and you have to follow rules and that's okay. You can do that. There is a problem with the two others because they include a paradox. In fact, when you tell somebody be creative, you come with a rule that states you shouldn't follow the rule. And when you tell somebody to be critical, you invite somebody to think by himself or herself but you are the inviter. So logic is fine. You can study. Critic and creative, you cannot teach. There is no science. It's when you teach logic, you share knowledge. When you teach creativity of critic, you share your passion. That's what I do. So looking at business, I guess you could say that the most critical modes of thought are the ones which have the greatest consequence but also the greatest insufficiency, where we may not be all good enough at that particular mode of thinking. So of these three modes of thinking, and and you've had a lot of experience also as a business consultant, what is most insufficient in business, most underdeveloped typically, but of the greatest consequence of these three modes? To me, the problem is when you don't have numbers. There is a strange thing about this book, it's my life. My first 20 years as a professional were in the logical computer finance industry. Then I moved for 30 years in the creative bubble and I became a consultant and I joined BCG. And now today as a grandfather, as a teacher, I'm mostly concerned by critical thinking. So it's a bit my life. And why did it happen? Because I'm an engineer and I noticed that in the end, in a business, in a, in a company, you have one side with numbers. And if you want to be rigorous with numbers, people can make that. But many questions don't include any numbers. And I present myself as a philosopher. In other words, how to be rigorous when you don't have any numbers. And that's my job now. So that very important area of critical reasoning where we don't have numbers, yeah. how can we be better at that? What sort of experiences or, or reading? That's what I learned when I went back to university. I was 42. I went, I said, okay, I want to be a philosopher. I have to study philosophy. It was so new to me. And I heard, I understood, for example, the importance of definitions. When you don't have numbers, you need definition. Because, in fact, my job is to fight bullshit. That's my job. When you don't have numbers, you are very quickly in the blah, 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 in the wishful thinking. My job is now how to be rigorous. I need definition. Creativity is not innovation, etc., etc. And you have to equip the definition with a criteria. That's what I learned in philosophy. When you have numbers, if you want to measure, you can measure, okay, this is two meters, three meters. But when you don't have numbers, how do you measure? And in philosophy, they introduce the idea of criteria. The criteria is a way you can assess things even when you don't have numbers. For example, if you want to improve the team spirit, okay, fine, everybody's agree, but how do you know a year from now that you have been good at improving or increasing the team spirit? Therefore, you need criteria. And those are things I learned from philosophy and I use now in the corporate world. Yes, look, I, so I hear you saying that 
definitions and criteria are important, improving your qualitative thinking skills. I, I agree. I think you also seem to be saying that submitting your thinking to challenge of others and also studying thinking, actually thinking about thinking by, for instance, reading your book. I mean, it seems to me you're implying that those can be helpful too. Absolutely. So when I start to work in a company, a workshop of a conference, I'm always start the same way. I'm not here to tell what you should think because I don't know what you should think. But I, I'm convinced I can help in the how you could think about this of this particular topic. And that's really what I learned in studying philosophy. Even when I learned mathematics, I never had such a question. And well, that's what I learned when I went back to university. I wish everybody can do the same. So it seems to me that culture affects thinking. I mean, there are some cultures I've come across, and I'm sure you have, where people will say things like, we don't need a theory, or don't speculate, be practical. And all of these sorts of values shape the thinking. Is there such a thing as a thinking culture? And what, what is a productive thinking culture? <laughs> Probably to think on different ones. I'm a Belgian, so I travel a lot. I worked in 50 different countries, and you are absolutely right. I noticed different culture around thinking. And probably, even as a Belgian, I'm born in a two different cultures country. I'm a Flemish and a, I speak French and Flemish. So when you can cross borders and you see a difference between cultures, that's where you can start to be useful for other people. Okay, so let's come on to this word digital in your, in your title. Your title of the book implies that Digital technology requires us to do something different or supplementary to our traditional ways of thinking. How does technology change the equation on thinking effectively in business? I remember in 2008, I was in California and there was a magazine called Wired Magazine, famous magazine. And the cover story was the end of science. That's what you said in the form of questions. So, and the claim of the magazine was... We have enough data, we have enough correlations, we don't need models anymore. We don't need science anymore. The same month, the same month, and it's not a coincidence, another magazine, The Atlantic, had a cover story, is Google making you stupid? And those two magazines really sparked something in my head. Maybe there is a topic. Of course, Google doesn't make me stupid, and of course, it's not the end of science. But those two magazines really sparked a discussion. And you see, indeed, that technology changes deeply the way we think, even if you go to the basics of thinking. For example, let's go back to Plato and Aristotle. The main difference, disagreement between the two was the idea of the category. Plato didn't want to use any of them. And Aristotle said, OK, maybe you're right, but if you don't accept the idea of the category, you cannot change anything. Of course, a category is a simplification. And we go back to the beginning of our conversation. But I know a category is a simplification. It's a bit frustrating. But if you don't accept the idea of the category, you cannot change anything. If you don't have a market segmentation, you cannot really change your market. Fine. But for 2,000 years, the category was supposed to be a monopoly of the human being. You, I, we can produce category. Today, you go to Google and you type, for example, philosopher. Google comes with proposition. 
philosopher of the Enlightenment of France, of I don't know what. So even the building of a category could be done by a computer. So if you go at the heart of the thinking, you see the impact. So broadly speaking, where do technologies obsolete or make less useful human thinking? And where do they re-emphasize the uniqueness of our thinking capacities? I don't know. The impact is obvious, where it becomes dangerous. But you see, what is a memory? What is a model? For example, what's an experience? Another big thing in, in philosophy, Bacon and Descartes disagree. Bacon said you have to build the knowledge on experiences. And Descartes said, no, okay, but what is an experience today? Astronomers don't look to the sky anymore. They look to the computer. And if you're in the pharmaceuticals, you don't. And if you want to build a plane, you don't go in the real world. You all work on screen. So an experience is no more what it used to be. So the basics of our thinking are deeply changed by technology. I don't have the answer. I just want to make a shock. Okay, we need to reset the whole thing because the world is so different. So you talk about the importance of, of critical thinking, as we've already discussed. We're now in an age of fake news and social polarization. I mean, presumably that complements argumentation. If the other side is not listening or believes some you know, extreme view which doesn't mesh with mine, we're not, we're not prepared to argue and reason. What sort of thinking can people deploy in those situations? Because that's, that's a very real dilemma for, for corporations today, I think. Of course, to argue in a Twitter on 100 characters, it's impossible. I think the right way to start the discussion is to compare what is new and what is not really new. Fake news, for example, is not new. If you go to the history of Europe, 400 years ago, there were already fake news. So fake news is not new. But today, with the network and the algorithm, you can customize the fake news. 50 years ago, a fake news was sent in the atmosphere and nobody knew exactly where it was going and who was hit by the. Today, you can craft for group A, one fake news, another group, another fake news. And that is completely new. On top of that, as you said, now I think there are as many psychologists as programmers at Facebook and others. They know not only who you are, they even know how you think. So they can embed cognitive bias and all those in the algorithm. And the cocktail is utterly powerful. But for, of course, we all tend to believe what we hope to be true. And that was said by Bacon 400 years ago. So it's all still today. But now you can put that in the algorithm. And we all know that sometimes we want to forward something which is not true because it's a bit exciting to forward and we don't check whether it's true or not. So we are part of the problem. So in, in terms of extracting some advice from your book on how to think in a digital age, when you see companies thinking about technology and the possibilities of technology, what are some of the mistakes or deficiencies that you see, some things to watch out for in terms of thinking in the digital world? There is a basic mistake, which is to think that the future is like an addition of what is today plus technology. 
That is the basic mistake. If you go that way, probably you will be disappointed. For example, I know last year, teachers were forced to go on Zoom. And most of them took the course and put on PDF and display on the screen. So, but no, to teach in a digital world is not to take the course the way it was before and to put on Zoom. It's to say, hey, what's my job? I want to transmit knowledge. Now the world is different. How can I teach better? So to me, the problem is not to digitize anything. The problem is to reinvent the world in a job in a world which has become digital, something like that. And I remember the, the cover story of The Economist about two years ago. There was information of data, the new oil. That was the cover story, the, the cover of the magazine. And very interesting, because when the oil was discovered in 1850, something like that, the next 30 years, the only thing which was done with oil was to burn it. So they took the new technology, the oil, in the old, the former mental model, which was called the oven just to burn the coal. So it's only in 1880-85 that suddenly people realized, oh, with oil, we can do things which was not possible at all with coal to make it explode and to transform into plastic. And I have the feeling today to answer your question that we are in a situation where companies burn their data. So they have lots of data, lots of data, but they use them, they process them in old paradigm, old mental models. I think the success of a digitalization is to change twice, to have more information, definitely, but also new mental models. That's maybe what I'm, I try to explain. Do you have any thoughts on metaverses and uh, virtual realities? I'm, I'm sure that word reality is stimulating for a philosopher. How should we be thinking about virtual reality? <laughs> Absolutely. So metaverse, it's a bit like Plato. Plato was convinced there is another world which is perfect, but inaccessible. And uh, we are poor little human being and we have to suffer because the perfection is inaccessible. So I don't know Zuckerberg myself but he's a bit platonic when he invent another world. Personally, I'm more on the other side. I'm more as a child of Aristotle. I don't think we need another world. I think we only have one planet with a combination of resources and real and virtual. But that's, again, you, I cannot prove I'm right. I think I'm more on the Aristotelian side. I think we have to combine things. And virtual reality, of course, is a paradox because for 2,000 years, it was either or. If it's real, it's not virtual. And now you combine things. And you're right. The way to, to, to start the thinking is very often the vocabulary we use. And you say, when you say, are you connected? But connected to what? People today talk about autonomous car. I haven't seen an object so, so little autonomous. It's absolutely not autonomous. It is an automatic car. Autonomy is the right to choose your own rule. I'm happy cars will never be autonomous. But let's talk about automatic car. So when you, even with the words, virtual reality, you can make progress and start an interesting discussion. So let's supposing that a CEO has read your book, Luke, and he's, he's saying, yeah, in this digital age, in this age of ambiguity, we, we need to shape up our thinking. We need to be 
more thoughts follow about thinking, where would they begin? You know, they, they have a desire to, to upgrade the organization's thinking capability. What, what can they practically do? I would say to think is to play. I use the metaphor constantly. To me, thinking is a game. And there are two things. First, the rules, and then the tactic. And my way to work is to go back to the rules. If you take chess, the, the world champion or the beginner, they have the same rules. And I notice in the corporate industry how useful it is to recap the rules of thinking. And there, it's not too difficult. I remember I watched TV 20 years ago, and there was a, a philosopher interview by a journalist. And at a given time, the journalist asked philosopher, hey, what do you think about engineers? And he answered, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know all of them. And this joke was to me like a, a starting point. Hey, I'm always in this situation. When I what do you think about lawyers? Why do you think about French people? You quickly come with an answer. But in fact, how many do? And that's the beginning. So when you or myself, we tell somebody, I'm thinking about my children. It's true. We think about the children. But when the CEO of Coca-Cola tells a journalist, I'm thinking about my client, this is not true. He or she maybe knows 1,000, 2,000 people. And she has millions of people. So it shows that the very first step of thinking is to forget, is to forget. There is a novel of José Gabriel Marquez, Funes or Memory. It's the story of a cowboy. He has an accident. One day she hits a, hits a rock and, and suddenly has an infinite memory. He goes on journey, comes back, meets a friend, and the friend says, Hey, Funes, you're back. How was your journey? And he doesn't answer. So the friend gets nervous. Hey, how was your journey? You've just been there. And he cannot answer because he remembers everything. So this is the way to start the workshop, to realize that thinking is possible only if you accept to forget 99% of what's in front of you. And that's the beginning of the story. So unfortunately, we have limited time today together, Luke. So I'll end with a couple of personal questions. So one of the things you do in your very variegated career is, is you now teach students. Yep. You teach MBA students, I believe. So what, what are you teaching them that maybe people wouldn't find in a typical MBA course and why? Hmm. I try to deliver the course I wish I had when I was 20, 25 or a bit more. My personal experience is I discover much too late all the things. And when I realized the power, I said, oh, I'm 45. This is So I tried to help students to win, I don't know, 10, 15 years in that. And of course, my very first job, 50 years ago, I was a teacher in mathematics. And I remember I tried to deliver knowledge. And at the end of the day, I was happy when the student can do what I could do. But in my job, no, absolutely not. I don't deliver any kind of food. I try to make people hungry and I try to make the students hungry. And if they don't forget me, I'm happy, whatever they have learned. And my last question, what will your next book or project be about? I'm grandfather and probably it's going to be a book for my grandchildren. The same material, of course. But my granddaughters have nine, nine, eight years old. And I start to talk with that three daughters. And I realize that I can be useful even at that age. I'd like to do something for 
this generation, so the future, they're going to be 85 in 2000. So that's probably going to be something for children. I've been talking with Luke de Brabender about his new book, Be Logical, Be Creative, Be Critical, The Art of Thinking in a Digital World, just published and available on Amazon. I think it's a really great guide to upgrading our critical mental resource. We often think about what people do in a corporation. We don't think often enough, I think, about how they think. And to do that, especially in the context of the digital age. So thank you very much, Luke, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We welcome feedback and join us next time where I'll be talking to Linda Gratton about her new book, Redesigning Work.